0: If you would, please stand. I'm going to read James chapter 5. I'm going to read verse 7 through 11. The Bible says in verse 7, Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth, and have long patience for it until he receive the early and latter rain. Be ye also patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. Grudge not one against another, brethren, lest ye be condemned. Behold, the judge standeth before the door. Take my brethren, the prophets, who have spoken in the name of the Lord for an example of suffering, affliction, and of patience. Behold, we count them happy which endure. We have heard of the patience of Job and have seen the end of the Lord. The Lord is very, uh, uh, the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. You may be seated. I, I have a revelation that's probably going to shock some of you guys. Uh, I am not a very patient person. I know some of you are like, I had no idea. Well, I I know I hide it well. I do a real good job acting like it, but I I do. I struggle with patience. And, you know, it's not that I I am incapable of waiting for things. Uh, You know, I I don't mind a little bit of suspense. I don't mind waiting for things. But oftentimes my patience, impatience, shows um, when I'm being inconvenienced. I mean, have you guys have been there, right? Okay, I'm the only one. Uh, I, don't, I don't even know why I'm up here tonight. Uh, we all struggle with this, right? I, I mean, I, I struggle with impatience when, uh, when I'm stuck behind somebody that's going five miles below the speed limit, right? I mean, right? Honestly, I'm impatient when I'm stuck behind somebody who's going the speed limit. So, uh, you know, there, there's, there's definitely a struggle with patience in, in my life. And as a result, uh, it's something that God's had to work on me for. Uh, but we all struggle with this. And I think if we're being honest, we'd all admit it, right? We, we seem a little tired. I don't know if we didn't wake up from our nap yet, but we're, we're here. We're exci- At least I'm excited. I hope you are excited about the preaching of God's word tonight. Uh, but let, let, here, let me give you a pop quiz. This might, this might wake you up a little bit. I want to give you two scenarios, and, and I want you to gauge your response. The, the first scenario, you're, you're driving uh, down a two-lane road. And uh, somebody pulls out in front of you. And, and of course, there's nobody behind you, but they pull out right in front of you, so you have to slam on your brakes. And they proceed to go about 25 miles an hour. You got double yellow lines. You're not, this is illegal. Don't don't pass on that. uh, And you're stuck behind them. What are your responses? Option A, you you sit there and you praise God for the opportunity to enjoy the scenery. (laughs) Option B, uh, you slam on your brakes you, you say things that you shouldn't say under your breath and contemplate, can I get around them without causing an issue? Uh, how many of us are taking option A? <laughs> a few, uh, you're liars. How many of us are taking option B? <gasps> uh, most of us, okay? Uh, secondly, you have a doctor's appointment. Doctor's appointment was supposed to be at 9.15. They said you need to show up 15 minutes early, so you showed up at 9 o'clock. It is now 10.30 and no doctor has come to see you. Option A, uh, uh, you sit there in the, in the waiting room thanking the Lord for the opportunity to catch up on Reader's Digest from 1993, <laughs> or you fuss and fume and uh, passively, aggressively go up and ask the, the receptionist, when's my appointment, where's the doctor, when's he gonna see me? Uh, uh, how many of us are taking option A? A, a few of us. Okay. Uh, how many of us are gonna be honest and say I'm taking option B? All right, most of us. Why? Because we struggle with patience, uh, patience is not something that we are great about. Well, in this passage, James is speaking. We have to remember the context of who he's speaking to. James is speaking to the early church. Uh, uh, the Lord has, has Jesus ascended uh, at the most 30 years before this date, somewhere between 15 to 30 years uh, from the time that James wrote this book. And so he's, he's telling them that they need to, to be patient and wait for the returning of the Lord. Because what's happening in the church is they truly and absolutely believed that Jesus was literally going to return any day. They, they, they were selling their property. They were selling their belongings so that, that people could go out and share the gospel. They, they, were, they were living communally, uh, sacrificing a lot so that, that the word of God could be spread. And now God's not returned yet, and they're getting a little impatient, a little frustrated. And so James's caution to them is to be sure, you, you see in verse 9, be ye also patient, establish your hearts. He's trying to remind them that, that there's, there's a good reason, that we're waiting for the Lord to return. Now, as we understand, it's been millennia since that time. Jesus has not returned. And though most of us are probably not struggling with the idea of waiting for Jesus to come, our patience or our need for patience looks a little different. Patience, as it's defined, is the ability to wait or to continue doing something despite the difficulties. We can develop this idea that that patience is this passive waiting. But like waiting in the doctor's office or being stuck behind somebody going too slow on, on a two-lane road. We can develop this idea that patience is just being calm as we wait or waiting without doing anything. But patience is so much more than that. Patience is waiting well. It's not the act of, of indifference but waiting well. Now, now, here, to illustrate that a little further, did you know that we have a national holiday coming up on October 4th? So I, that would be this Wednesday, October 4th, we have a national holiday coming up. Uh, I'm sure most of us have no idea what it is. It is National Walk to School Day, okay? That's this October 4th, National Walk to School Day. I'm excited, I'm gonna make my kids walk to all the way to school. I'm, going, I'm driving, and they can walk. Uh, they've figured it out, uh, But, you know, I I have no problem, I have no problem in my life being patient for October 4th, National Walk to School Day. You know why? I don't care. It's not something I celebrate. In fact, I didn't know it existed until I wrote the sermon looking for a ridiculous holiday to make fun of. So now now we have something to talk about. I'm indifferent. And so it's easy for me to be patient when it comes to National Walk to School Day. Is it not? I don't care about it. It means nothing to me. I can wait the rest of my life for National Walk to School Day. But truthfully, that's not patience. That's indifference. And if we're not careful, our patience or our waiting for the return of Jesus will look a lot like indifference. Because we know he's coming back but we've kind of lost the zeal. We've kind of lost the passion. Where James is speaking to a people who who are chomping at the bit waiting for Jesus to return, the application looks a little different today. today's church because we're no longer chomping at the bit, but we've become comfortable. We've become relaxed as we wait. And in so doing, we've forgotten the responsibilities that that God's given us. So tonight, I, I very simply would like for us to look at the Christian responsibility while we wait and the helps to accomplish that responsibility. So number one, The Christian responsibility while we wait. Uh, Look with me in in verse 8. We see in verse 8, Be ye also patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. The first thing that James challenges the believers to do is to not become restless. Restless waiting is the worst waiting. Uh, if you've ever, if you've, if you have a child uh, w- when you're w- waiting for, for that due date to arrive, it seems like that last month or last two months just, just stretch out in eternity. Uh, I remember with, with all of our kids, it's like, oh my goodness, we are, we are four weeks away from having this child. And, and then that four weeks seemed like as long as the, the last nine months, it's, it's a little crazy. But then, of course, uh, with with all four of our children, my wife had to be induced, so not only do we have to wait until the due date, but uh, in in Ella's case, we had to wait 10 days past the due date, and then my wife had to be induced, and then we had to go to the hospital, and we had to sit there and wait for almost, I think it was like 23 hours that my wife labored waiting for uh, Ella to arrive. That's restless waiting. You're sitting there, you're twiddling your thumbs, you can't do anything, you don't want to make any plans as you wait for the the due date to arrive, and, and it's very frustrating But James uses an illustration of a farmer because because this is something that these people culturally understand. A farmer's responsibility, as he works, there's a lot of waiting involved, right? He waits to sow, he waits to reap, but a farmer is never just sitting around idly by doing nothing. In fact, if you know a farmer, they have enough work to keep them busy from now until the end of time. That's just how farmers operate. And James uses this illustration because as we are waiting for the return of Jesus, it can be very easy for us to restlessly wait. We're waiting with anxiety. We're we're, we're anticipating his return so much that we're not waiting well. But the best way to combat restless waiting is to stay busy, to do what God's called us to do while we wait. Now, much like the farmer, you and I have a lot of work to do. None of us are in our Christian life able to sit down and say, I've arrived. I've done everything I need to do. Nothing else needs to be done. I can kick my feet up and never work a day. No, absolutely not. Within our Christian life, there is always a responsibility and an obligation to do more. And and as we need to combat restless waiting, we need to be sure that we are keeping ourselves busy. But I think if we're being honest, most of us aren't restless in our anticipation for Jesus' return. In fact, if I were to tell you Jesus is coming back tomorrow, I'd probably be greeted with a chuckle, and I sure hope so, as our behavior changes none at all. Because we know he's coming, but it's not quite real to us. So James also addresses not only the restless waiting, but the doubtful waiting. You know, we know that Jesus is going to return. There's no doubt in our minds. We know it's going to happen. It's a cornerstone of our faith. But how does our behavior What does our behavior say about our waiting? Do we actually believe it's going to happen? I mean, can a farmer say he knows there's a crop to to reap if he never prepares his farming implements and gets anything ready for it? He can say, yeah, harvest is coming, but if he does nothing to prepare, does he actually care? Can a believer say they know that Jesus is going to return if they're doing absolutely nothing to prepare? Listen, we, we have a huge responsibility. A huge obligation to be sure that we are serving God passionately and faithfully. But unfortunately, our doubtful waiting has caused us to come to this place where where we're more indifferent than we are patient. We know he's coming, but it doesn't affect our day to day. Have you you ever, as a child, been told by your parents that they left for the day and they gave you a list of chores to do? And uh, uh, how many of you are diligent children who, as soon as your parents walked out the door for the day, you got right to work and did all those chores right off the bat? OK, how many of you are like me and you waited until, you know, dad to be home at four o'clock. Uh, you waited until three fifty five to start those chores. How many of you guys are like, yeah, yeah that's what happens. Well, we, we like to put it off to the very last minute. But listen, we don't know when Jesus is coming back. We don't have the luxury of saying he'll be back tomorrow. I need to get all this stuff done before he gets back. We don't have that luxury. And unfortunately, many of us are operating under the same kind of attitude as as if we're waiting for our parents to come back to do our chores. There's no passion. There's no urgency. There's no desperation about the cause of Christ. And as a result, we're seeing churches that are bloated and full, but a world that is dying and going to hell. We've become doubtful in our waiting. James also addresses uh, the grumbling as they wait. Look in verse 9. He says, grudge not one against another, brethren, lest ye be condemned. Behold, the judge standeth before the door. James encourages the believer to endure the mistreatment and endure the frustration of life. Now remember who he's speaking to. He's speaking to a people who, who are really honestly fighting for survival. This church in Jerusalem was, was facing immense persecution. They were being being battered on all fronts. To worship God was not a popular thing. It was something that they did at the cost of their own life. And as this was happening, these people were finding such a community and identity within church that of course there's going to be frustrations within it. Of course there's going to be. You can't have people and not have frustrations. And and, and I, I think as we look around this church, even tonight, we understand that. There are people in here who you're not going to be best friends with. You have different interests, different hobbies you're, you're not going to get along with. There are some people who, who maybe their personality rubs you the wrong way. Uh, we won't point out anybody, but I'm sure we can all point to some people, right? Uh, you, most of you are like, yeah, this uh, right up there. No, uh, but there are people whose personalities rub us the wrong way, and we're not going to get along. This is not a new problem. This is not something that's, that's, that's a surprise or, or, or special to the modern church. This is something that happens anytime time you get people together. When there are people together, there's going to be conflict. There's going to be issues. And so James challenges these believers that as they wait, that they don't wait combatively with each other. That, that they instead are patient with each other and that they grudge not or grumble not against each other. So how how do we do that within our church? How do we do that with ourselves? First of all, we need to realize that our struggles are not the center of everyone else's attention. That's tough. It's tough. When, When I have a problem, it's the center of my world. And I expect everybody else to be worried about my problem, right? That's how we all operate. That's why I get mad when somebody pulls out in front of me and goes really slow, because don't they know I have somewhere to be? Why? Because my problem is the center of my world and oftentimes that can cause us to get to the point where within a church that we're frustrated and we're angry that nobody else is seems to even care about our problem nobody's reaching out to us nobody loves us no why why is nobody seeing my hurt and we start to lie to ourselves and tell us or tell ourselves that that they don't care when in truth it's not that they don't care they don't know And within a church, especially a Christian body of this size, we must be sure that we aren't allowing ourselves to to back ourselves into the corner and complain about how nobody loves us, nobody cares about us, when we've done nothing to reach out and to seek the help that we need. When it comes to our, our, our body of believers, the grumbling is often caused with discontentment with our own lives. And if we go to somebody else and we seek godly counsel and godly wisdom, it will often help us resolve that issue. And if it is a problem that needs to be addressed, talking to somebody is only going to help us. But unfortunately, we develop this idea that if we tell somebody, then then somehow that's that's complaining. But but though there is some of that, if we need help, we need to ask. We need to reach out and we need to go to the the body of Christ and seek that help because, because God's told us to do so. But we must also, secondly, be sure that we aren't uh, immersing ourselves in a problem that we have created, a result of our own selfishness. We can grumble about issues that are our own making, can't we? You know, we can be frustrated by, by something that, that was our, our own fault. And instead of fixing the problem, we're seeking to resolve the problem. We sit there and we wait for somebody else to resolve the issue, or we wait for, for it to go away while we just grumble and we complain about it, and we're on unhappy with what's going on. How much more effective would Oakwood Baptist Church be if every believer saw an opportunity of ministry as an opportunity for them to minister? Not for an opportunity to run to the pastor and say, hey, this is something we need to do, but say, hey, listen, we have this need. How can I help meet it? Listen, church, the body of Christ, this congregation tonight is not meant for the individual, though it should help the individual. It is meant to glorify God. And everything, every single thing we do should be geared to that singular focus. All right, secondly, Christians' responsibility uh, leads us to the helps that God has given us to accomplish that responsibility. Look at me in verse 10 and 11. The Bible says, Take my brethren, the prophets, who have spoken in the name of the Lord for an example of suffering, uh, I'm sorry, of suffering, affliction, and of patience. Behold, we count them happy which endure." You have heard of the patience of Job, and you've seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. First of all, James points out three examples that will help us as we wait. The first, of course, is the farmer. And we've already talked a little bit about him. A man whose life is, is, is built around or focused on the production of crops. And as we understand, a farmer's job is not an easy job or a glamorous job. There's no red carpets or, or special uh, uh, parties thrown for farmers. You know, farming is really a thankless job. And a farmer wakes up every morning early and he goes to bed every night late and he, he toils endlessly for, for a greater cause than himself. And James uses this illustration of a farmer to, to point out he that perseveres for something greater than immediate gratification. We as believers cannot be a people who are focused on our own gratification above everything else. We have to be sure, like the farmer, that we are, we are delaying our gratification, that we're pushing our gratification down the road and instead make our gratification, make the thing that, that motivates us the honoring and the glorifying of God. Listen, if, if Jesus were to return tomorrow, what does your labor look like? What does your investment look like? Who, who are you ministering to? Who are you, who are you sowing with so that you can reap the harvest of their salvation? Listen, I'm serious here. If we were to evaluate how many people this congregation is is reaching right now, how many you personally were reaching right now for the cause of Christ, I think most of us would be embarrassed. We're doing a great job with our families. We're doing a great job with people who don't need it. But what are we doing for out there? The the, the farmer is not focused on self, but he's instead focused on providing for many. And we must be sure that like the farmer, that we are reaching outside of our comfort zone, that we are reaching outside of our immediate circle so that we can bless and help other people. Because Jesus is coming back. And when he comes back, what a shameful day as we stand before him and say, God, I have done little to nothing for your name. I have, I have only led one person or two people Lord. I've only shared the gospel with a handful of people. I have done so little in preparation for your return. I'm sorry. There is no second chance. There is no do-over. When Jesus returns, if he were to come back tonight, if he were to come back right this second, how many people would be in hell because of our indifference? James uses a farmer to illustrate that we must delay our gratification. It's not about our comfort. He he uses this directly after the first part of chapter 5 where he talks about greed. There's no accident. James knows what he's doing. He's he's blasting the human desire for comfort. And he's confronting that, trying to get us over the, the idea that we should be comfortable and instead how we should be passionate about what God's called us to do. The second, the second group that he uses to, to, to uh, give us an example is the prophets, those that have suffered without seeing the end results. We're going to read through the whole first half of our Bible and read about men who are killed by kings, who are killed by the populace, who are killed by people, who were who angry at them for delivering the message that God had for them and never saw the fruit of their labor. Ah, that's that, that there can be few things as demoralizing, as spending your whole life and never seeing any result from it. But as we look at the prophets, what do we see? We see men that didn't care. They weren't bothered that there was no fruits. They weren't bothered that no thing was happening. They were doing what God called them to do, and they were faithful to it. They struggled as any of us would have, but they stayed faithful. And in the end, God used their life and their death to bring glory to his name and, and to change the lives of people around him. Listen, what, where are we in this? If, if we spend our entire life investing and, and, and caring for people and we never saw one person saved, would, would we give up? Would we lose our zeal? Would we lose our passion? God hasn't called us to convert anyone. God's called us to spread the gospel. And as a result, we see conversions. But if we don't, we're still called to spread the gospel. That's our job. We must be sure that we're fulfilling that responsibility, which leads to the third example. Uh, The third example is Job. And he uses Job to show those that suffer without a seeming reason. Job is always an interesting one in the Bible, isn't he? Satan comes to God and he says, hey God, I I want to test your servant Job. I I want to afflict him. I want to see if I can get him to curse your name. God says, go ahead. That seems harsh, doesn't it? He loses his family. He loses his children. He loses his wealth. He loses his health. He, he, he's suffering horribly. Why? So that he could bring glory to God. I, I don't know why God allows bad things to happen to his people, people who are passionately following him. But I can tell you this. The suffering of the believer should, above all else, bring glory to God. And we see that in Job's life. We see a man who, who, though, again, he didn't do everything perfectly. He he was definitely human. He never one time cursed God in the lowest moments of his life. He, He never cursed God. And in the end, Job's life is a testament to the power of God. I don't know the issues that we are facing in here. All of us are going through something. Some of us much greater than others. Some of us are dealing with the loss of a loved one. Some of us are dealing with health issues that, 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 are, that are causing a lot of fear and uncertainty in our life. Some of us are dealing with situations at work that we're, not unsure, that we're unsure of how things are gonna go. We're dealing with a lot of uncertainty, a lot of struggle, if you will. And in those moments, it can be very easy for us as we wait for Jesus Wait for him to show his plan, to become frustrated and angry at what he's doing. But we must understand that every every obstacle, every frustration, every trial, every hurt that we experience is simply so that you and I, as believers, can bring glory to God's name. Our darkest day should only be an opportunity for us to bring glory to God. So we see that the examples that are offered, but we can also see that God has a plan. God is not a sadistic, hurtful God who is seeking to, to, to hurt his people. God is a loving father who, who wants to give us the best. And as we wait for God, we have to understand his plan is perfect. Can be we can be frustrated and impatient, but God's plan is perfect. He's never out of control. Noah, our, our son, loves to play on our, our, our bed. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't know about... You're home, but my wife has a lot of um, unnecessary pillows on our bed. Um, I, I gave up that fight a long time ago. We put them on there. It's great. It's fine. But he loves to play on our bed, and he loves to get up there, and he, he likes to shove the pillows off or hide it. He likes to wedge himself between the headboard and the pillows, and it's, it's, it's just, you know, it's fun. It's neat, uh, and as a dad, of course, I have to pick him up and throw him onto the bed or, or body slam him onto the bed. What, you know, just doing what a dad should do, and Noah loves it. <laughs> But Noah has a problem. He, he cannot get off the bed by himself. He can, he just doesn't think he can. Now, you know, of course, he's, he's just tall enough to where his head comes up over the bed. Uh, so as, as we've tried to teach him, we, we teach him to slide off the bed, feet first. He hangs on, slides off the bed, feet first. So, of course, he's not going to hurt himself. Well, what Noah loves to do is he slides off the bed feet first and gets to the point where he's, he's grabbed onto the, the comforter and he can't quite touch the floor. He'd be about two or three inches from the floor. And he starts to panic. He, he's hanging onto the bed and he's, he's fussing. and He's crying and he's yelling. And I'm standing over there like a very loving and passionate father laughing at him, waiting for him to figure it out. And, of course, what happens? Noah slides the rest of the way off the bed. His feet hit the floor. He immediately stops crying and acts as if nothing has happened before and everything's okay. And, and he, he doesn't want any of us to bring attention to how ridiculous he was behaving. Now, as a dad, I, I very easily could run over there and help him gently off the bed and, and, and caringly pat him on the head as he runs away. You got this, buddy. But uh, if I were to do so, I would remove all difficulty from his life. And and teach him and, and fail to teach him how to handle those tough situations. But of course, in those moments, I'm sure Noah's looking at me as if I'm a terrible father who doesn't even care about him and is just waiting for him to fall off the bed and die. Uh, but but that's of course not at all what's happening. He as a little baby is 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 allowing a very small issue to become overblown and, and disproportionate in his life. And very very quickly he realizes it's not that big of a deal. We are very much the same way. Much like Noah hanging off the bed with our feet a couple inches off the floor, throwing a fit, we, we throw a fit because we do not see the end plan that God has. But God's never been out of control. God's never going to allow us to, 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 to hurt ourselves unnecessarily. God is always there and is never, never indifferent towards his people. And as we become impatient waiting for God, as we become indifferent as we wait for God, we can forget the plan that he has. We can forget that he's intended a a perfectly ordered plan for our lives. The the steps of a righteous man are ordered by the Lord. We can forget that God has a plan for every aspect of our life. And as we hang off the bed, facing uncertain issues and things that we're terrified of, and we don't know how we're going to face them, we have to understand that God is standing there as in control as he's ever been. Listen, God's coming back. God's coming back. I don't know when. I would love it if I could stand up here and I could give you a date. We could all get passionately and, 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 and busily working about our father's business. But we, don't, we shouldn't need a date to be passionate about what God's called us to do. We, we shouldn't need a deadline to get to work. We have all been given a responsibility to go into the world and to teach the gospel. We are no different than the first generation, the very first church. Our responsibilities have not changed at all. But we have changed. In our doubts, in our difference, we've allowed ourselves to forget that life is not about comfort. But life is about God. We are are so dangerously missing out on what God has for us because we have forgotten about his return. I think if we're being honest and we're to to evaluate in our lives, how often do you think about the return of Christ? Is it it the the motivating factor when you wake up in the morning? Is it it part of your prayer when you go to bed at night? Or is it something we think about on occasion and, and... Yeah, he's coming. I I know he's coming. Someday. But it doesn't define us as a Christian. James is speaking to a people who are restlessly anticipating his return. And throughout the years, the church has lost the restlessness and gained an indifference. And it's a shame on us. It It is a reproach on us that we've allowed ourselves to reach the same conclusion. We'll close with these questions. Are you guilty of being restless or doubtful? Again, not doubtful in that you don't think he'll return, but doubtful in the sense of your behavior is not indicative of the fact he could return this second. Do you allow yourself to grumble while you wait? Are you discontent? Are you frustrated with the way the church is doing things or the condition of our world or how bad things have gotten? We are so prone to grumbling about that. I'm with you. I, every time I fill, fill up my truck, I am, I am angry at the current state of politics. I, every time I, I put that, that fuel pump in my truck and I'm, th- thanks, Biden. <laughs> I'm grumbling. But I can allow my, my frustration at the current administration or the state of affairs or the direction our world is heading to cause me to to become frustrated as I wait. And I cannot allow that to happen. Thirdly, do you look to the lives of those that have gone before us to motivate you to stay true to God's plan? We We have some immense heroes of our faith. Of course, we look in the Bible, we've got men like Paul, men like Stephen, we, we look to the modern era, and we have, we have those that were part of the, the great revivals. We have Billy Sunday and, and, and George Mueller, these men who, who poured themselves into the, lot, the serving of people, the love of people. Those men are not special. They were just serious about God's calling. Any one of us could be the same thing. Do we look at their lives and say, man, that's awesome. I wish I could be like that, while, while we very well could be? but we've allowed indifference to keep us from getting there.